three messages in a Christmas series called Repeat the Sounding Joy. And this morning, six reasons. Six reasons for divine Christmas joy. Let's pray. We read some of those texts that Pastor Chris was reading to us and we, we recognize clearly they speak of a day that isn't here yet. And that imagery of Zion, the Old Testament Zion, now the, the, the new covenant people of God from every tongue, race, and tribe, and a new creation, all of which has its root in the birth of that baby. The virgin birth and the new creation. You have a new creation at each end. The new creation of a virgin birth and the new creation of a whole new world. All wrapped up in that baby and God's divine plan. It's bigger than we imagined. Guide us and help us as we look at these truths today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus didn't just arrive at that manger in Bethlehem. We're told repeatedly in different phrases that are very similar, we're told why he came, and that's what I want to do today. I want to look at six reasons that Jesus gave for his coming into this world. John's teaching makes it very important for us to understand what we mean and what we don't mean when we talk about Jesus coming into this world. We don't mean, and by the way, what is everyone supposed to do right now? Turn off your phone, check it, look at it. If you're here and you're over 70, take it out and show it to the person beside you. (laughs) Say, is this on? We don't mean that his birth marked the beginning of the existence of God the Son. We don't mean that. That would be impossible because as John says in the very first chapter of his record, there never was a time when God the Son began to exist. The Son was eternally with the Father. We call the coming of God the Son as baby Jesus, the incarnation. This is the time when God the Son received that birth name, Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And he was born of the Virgin Mary with a human, material, physical body. That's what we're looking at in this Christmas teaching. Why did Jesus incarnate come into this world. And I think it's important that we let Jesus speak for himself. There are all sorts of people who have their ideas about who Jesus was and is and what he accomplished during his earthly life. You know many of the ideas. They run from a a poor, deluded, moral reformer to the greatest religious teacher of all times, to a prophet, to a superstar, traveling Palestine with his zealous groupies. And if that's all Jesus accomplished in his coming, 
I want to know that that's all he accomplished. Because I certainly don't want to hitch my wagon to some mistaken religious dream that will desert me in the end. If I'm mistaken about Jesus and why he came, I want to know it now. But I don't, I don't believe I'm mistaken. I think the biblical witness to Christ Jesus is reliable, accurate, and compelling. And I have six I came or I have come texts from the lips of Jesus. Some of them you've heard a million times. I specifically chose some that I think might surprise you, especially on a warm Christmas season with pretty trees all lit up on the platform. Some of the things Jesus said about why he came are just incredibly blunt and impacting. These are not media-friendly soundbites. So try and listen with fresh ears to these life-changing Christmas statements from Jesus about why he came. One, Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man, that is, by the way, Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. One day we're going to look at that but not this morning. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's where we get the word redemption, ransom. The words ransom, redemption, and redeem are used a great deal in the New Testament, used a great deal by John, and they're there for a good reason. They are words that describe the root of my problem. In spite of what we get from a lot of our worship courses, where we're being delivered from our fears and all sorts of psychological ailments, Jesus didn't come to free you from your fears. He came to redeem you from your sin. You and I are in dreadful spiritual condition. And if we weren't afraid of anything, we would still be in dreadful spiritual condition. He came to give his life a ransom. And those words just cut right to the root of the nature of our problem. We're reminded over and over again that our need isn't just information. And that's pretty relevant today. Today's approach for solving mankind's problems, we're constantly told that, that if, we just, if we just know enough especially scientifically, medically, technologically, we, we will turn the tide. Once we know what is right, we will give ourselves to what is right. We're also told that what we need is a great example to follow. If we just see the truth in action, we will be drawn into it ourselves. The problem, of course, is this world has been loaded with good teaching to learn, and great examples to follow. Our problem is we frequently choose to either ignore or reject the truth or ignore the examples when it's more convenient for us, for ourselves to, to do it. Enter Jesus. And he comes, and out of his own lips, these words come a-tumbling, we need to be ransomed because we are, 
we are, we are captive to an alien power. The people who live on your street, the people next door to you, the people in the apartment above you, the people that sit in your university class in the chair next to you, that's what's wrong. They don't know that. No amount of teaching or preaching or church growing, going or penance paying or alms giving or carol singing will pay the ransom for my release from sin's power. No religious instructor, no prophet can redeem. That's the relevance of Christmas. This is where Jesus stands alone as our greatest and only hope. He paid the ransom. Look at Galatians 4, 4 and 5. This is Paul here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. There's, there's your hint to the virgin birth. Born, and it's just the woman that's mentioned. The virgin birth. Born of woman. Born under the law. Here it is. To redeem. There's that word. To redeem those who were under the law so that, here's the result, we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. The fullness of time, Paul says. The fullness of time. That fullness of time is is the time when the birth of Jesus came in Bethlehem. He was born, says Paul, to provide for you and for me the adoption Children of God. We're we're not children of God by birth. We're creatures of God by birth. We're children of God through Jesus Christ and his redeeming work. But there was something standing in our way. We need to be adopted as children of God. We needed redeeming. There was a ransom that had to be paid. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. We weren't in morally neutral territory just waiting to latch on to Father God's family. No, we were in enemy territory. Children of wrath, Paul says in another place. We willingly chose dark and sinful ownership. Jesus came to pay the price so that our adoption as sons and daughters of God would become a genuine possibility. I came to give my life a ransom. That's what Jesus said about why he came. Two. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 5, 31 and 32. This is a very telling text. And he answered them, the Pharisees, what are you doing with these people? These are bad people you're hanging around with. Jesus is responding to that. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous. This is his coming into the world, his incarnation. I didn't come to call the righteous, but, praise God, sinners to repentance. So prone are we to overlook this, minimize it, or forget it. Jesus says the same thing twice in two verses, and he says it in two different ways. First, because Jesus knows all sin has its root in an inward condition that is 
until it manifests in deeds, an inward condition that is invisible to the human eye. He refers to it in more common terms, just to help us get a handle on it, sickness. A sickness. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Think of disease. Cancer. Lupus. Think of migraines. We know, we know this language, sickness. And what we all know almost by reflex is sick people need a doctor. Hospitals aren't full of healthy people. That's where sick people go. They need doctors. It's even more than that. Doctors exist for sick people. And then Jesus comes out and he states the central point. Just as a doctor exists for sick people, Jesus came for sinful people. If you ever think of the coming of Jesus and separate it from human sin, you're getting it wrong. Jesus came for sinful people. Now, no one would have come to that conclusion automatically. They wouldn't come to that conclusion because even in their Old Testaments, all these people knew how packed the Bible is with this overflowing fact that God is holy, blazingly holy and pure. And so we naturally would conclude he favors holy people. That makes sense. A holy God would favor holy people. This is ingrained in our systems. It's ingrained in the world's religions. We sin, we hide from God. We sin, we cover up. We sin, we lie. We sin, we blame others. We sin, we stay home from church and we say it's full of hypocrites. We sin and we stop praying. Or worse, we hypocritically turn up our noses at other sinners because it helps us feel less sick about ourselves. All of those things. How how desperately we all and this world, how desperately we need to really hear these words from our holy Lord Jesus who said he came to call sinners Call them. Call them to repentance. Do you, are you, is that landing in your heart? That our holy Lord Jesus has a special interest in really sinful people? Are you getting it? There's a glory in that. Our holy Lord Jesus, his heart goes out to really sinful people. Those ones are the ones I call. It shouldn't work that way. It makes no sense. Oh, I know. Sinners still have to repent. But... Because the ransom has been paid, the roadblocks have been removed. We can all repent knowing the price has been paid to make repentance fruitful instead of condemning. 
This is Christmas truth. Through the birth of our Savior, if you've never heard it before, God is open to your repentance. Just wide open to your repentance. Doesn't matter what you've done. My, how can I say it? My repentance doesn't irritate Jesus. Do you ever get that way? Oh, I failed again. And you want to hide? Do you know who's telling you that your repentance irritates Jesus? Do you know who's telling you that? The devil's telling you that. My repentance doesn't annoy Jesus. It doesn't irritate him. He invites it. He calls sinners to repentance. No one need feel that his cry for mercy will fall on deaf ears. The ransom has been paid. God has taken the first step. We can repent with good faith. It's another Christmas wonder. Three. Went too long on that one. Jesus came to give spiritual sight to the morally blind. Now here's a text you might not be thinking about at Christmas but it's a Christmas text. John 9, 39 to 41. Look it up. Don't just look up here. Underline it in your Bible. I don't know how you do that in your smartphone. You'll have to figure that out. There's a way. Talk to Chad. I mean, everybody, phone Chad this afternoon. John 9, 39 to 41. Jesus said, okay, now this is Jesus is the speaker. For judgment, I, so this is Christmas, right? Came into this world. Is that Christmas? Absolutely. Do you think of that when you think of Christmas? Especially the last point that we just went over. For judgment I came into this world. What kind of judgment are you talking about, Jesus? That those who do not see, that's the sick people that need the doctor. Those who do not see may see, but then this part. And those who see may, seriously? May become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. They're not going to let this go. This isn't just like love one another teaching. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Look at this answer. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. What does that mean? I mean, these are staggering words that are clearly Christmas words. Here's why I came into this world. Here's why I was born in Bethlehem. These words tell us that apart from seriously hearing Jesus, maybe I'm speaking to someone in this room. Apart from seriously listening to Jesus as God the Son, the Redeemer, we don't have a clue about the deepest issues of life. We don't have a clue about our own deepest needs, regardless of how brilliant we might be in other fields of interest, economically, politically, athletically, educationally. 
financially. Apart from personal attachment to Jesus Christ, we are simply blind. We're blind to to the biggest eternal dimension and issues of our lives. And, And here's why these Christmas words are so important. The reason those words are so important is people who reject Jesus Christ don't usually think they are functioning as blind people. Let me say that again. People who, for one reason or another, don't take seriously Jesus Christ, they don't usually think of themselves as functioning as blind people. They usually just think they have more important things to do. That's normally the case. They think they're too cultured to embrace a 2,000-year-old religion. They think they're just living in the real world. They think Jesus is just one more psychological crutch for people of faith who are naturally a little more needy, a little more mystical. If it works for you, fine, nice. So in other words, in other words, a lot of people who reject Jesus think they see just fine. And that's where this point is so keenly related to the previous one about repentance. People who who don't repent when they confront Jesus, they just aren't seeing things as they really are. They think they do, but they're blind, Jesus says. People who think they see without repentance, without Jesus, they're blind. Those who think they can genuinely hear Christmas truth about Jesus Christ and just continue on with business as usual, Jesus says they're blind. And And then please hear Jesus say, verse 41, he says they're Their guilt remains. Not guilt feelings. He's not talking about a psychological process where you can't sleep at night. He's talking about actual legal guilt before a holy God, whether they feel it or not. That guilt, Jesus says, doesn't go away. Doesn't go away. That's what remains means. God has made it easy. He has opened the door by paying the ransom. Repentance does not require previous moral purity. You just have to come. You have to just see a tiny bit of light there and respond to it. And then after you repent, other lights start to go on. Your eyes are open to a whole new world of joy and grace. Ignore Jesus, and however brilliant you might be, you're just not seeing things as they are at all. Your guilt remains. That's Jesus speaking, not some... Bible-thumping, backwards preacher, Jesus says, your guilt remains. It'll destroy you. Four, Jesus came to deliver mankind from the condemnation of a just and holy God. John three seventeen and 18. For God did not send his son into the world. That's Christmas, right? God did not send his son into the world, the baby in Bethlehem. He didn't do that to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's that's Jesus, the baby who grew up, died on the cross. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Notice how these verses begin. It's all about the sending of the Son into the world. They are why Jesus came verses. And they're important words because they prevent the misunderstanding that we can safely go on in the blindness of our own hearts indefinitely, thinking that everything will just kind of come out all right in the end because, well, God's nice, generally nice, loving. But these words come from the most honest person who has ever drawn a breath. These words come from the lips of Jesus. And they're words that are tailored to to incite urgency in our hearts. Let me say it as clearly as I know how. For the unrepentant sinner, for the one who chooses to turn away from God's ransom and grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, for that person, the greatest danger isn't his or her sin. The greatest danger isn't demons or Satan. No. The death of God on the cross provides grace greater than all of my sins combined. That shouldn't be an issue. The greatest danger isn't demons or Satan. Paul says that the death of God the Son on the cross provides grace greater than... It's a triumph a triumph over Satan. That's the word Paul uses. The greatest danger is that is, is, is this, the condemnation. It's not that God wants it. Repent, come to Jesus. But if not, there's, there's the condemnation of a holy God. So Jesus is God's answer to the just condemnation of guilty sinners. What that means is, outside of Jesus, there is nothing but wrath from Father God. Not a wicked temper tantrum, irrational kind of anger that we're most familiar with. Just there's this unbending, uncompromises, fixed stance that can never be softened in tolerating sin. If we don't choose Jesus in repentance and faith, we choose the wrath of God on our lives. Pastor Don, I don't believe it. You don't have to believe me. Is this up on the screen? John 3.36? Let's read it all out loud, okay? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him or her. It, do you see it? It's the Son... Believing, obeying the Son, or say it. It just remains. It just remains. Is it fair of God? Is it fair of Father God to punish God the Son for my sin? wouldn't be, if it weren't for the doctrine of the Trinity, 
So don't get a picture. God doesn't just pass the buck on to Jesus for my sin. He bears it himself. I get that in 2 Corinthians 5.19. 2 Corinthians 5.19. So in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. When when God, the Son, bears the just condemnation of my sin on the cross, when I truly embrace this truth in faith, my own life experiences true liberation. When the objective, legal, just condemnation of my sin is dealt with from God's end in salvation, I am free from the paralyzing hold, that subjective inward condemnation that robs me of peace and contentment in Christ. Here's the best text I know of on that subject. Romans 8, 31-34. What then shall we say to these things? You've got to say something. You have to say something. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is there a better question in the whole Bible than that one? There's a for and an against. There's lots of things against us. But but if God is for us, I mean really for us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You say, well, I've got all sorts of stuff. I want I'm sick. I want to be healed. I want a job. The all things is, is ultimately, just, just push it far enough down the road. What don't you get in Christ? And the answer is there's nothing you don't get in Christ. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge? We're talking about condemnation. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Elect in Christ. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. So there's that thread of argument. We're meant to sort of trace it along. Condemnation can come from a lot of sources. The devil is called the accuser of the brothers and sisters in Scripture. Our own hearts, John says, can condemn us for many things, many times. Sometimes the way we were raised brings needless condemnation for actions that are really nothing more than the breaking of traditions of our upbringing that might not have scriptural support, but we still feel the condemnation. How do we stand in the face of all of this? How do we find peace? Capstone is in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Name it. Identify it. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for our sin. The power of all condemnation, just or otherwise, Broken in Jesus Christ. Five. Jesus came to realign all other relationships. Here's, here's a, I'll guarantee you, here's a Christmas text you haven't thought about. 
Matthew 10, 34 to 36. It's one of the great I came passages. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. Peace on earth and... Don't we sing it? What is this? Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come... This is Christmas. Am I right? I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Pastor Don, man alive. Peace on earth and... What are you doing to us? Why are you... Why this text? I have a couple things that I would say to that. Um, I didn't say it. The person you need to talk to, go home, kneel by your bed, and you tell him. What do we do with these bizarre words from Jesus? Here's why I came. That's what this is about. Here's why I've come. Our honest Lord is announcing the reason I've come. 35, I have come to. So, So we got options. Should we just pretend Jesus never said it? Or should we just say, let's just leave that part of the Bible. Just leave it. That's what a lot of people do. I think these Christmas words are spoken for a rich divine purpose. And, and if we ignore them, here's what I think. We will miss a beautiful, uh, it's like those Lynn chocolates and that really nice part in the middle. We will miss a beautiful, beautiful grace truth simply because it's in a hard, crusty shell. And I don't think we want to do that. In our hearts, we sort of know what Jesus is trying to tell us. Better Jesus with no one else than everyone else without Jesus. And we know that it will cost something to seriously follow Jesus. Better to live with division, strife, persecution. We're getting there, church. Persecution. Better to live with division and strife and persecution and have Christ than to have peace and harmony, the applause and adoration of friends and peers, and have no allegiance to Jesus Christ. We, we, we have to hear that from Jesus. That, that love is always totalitarian. It's all-consuming or it's not at all. You can't serve two masters, in other words, Jesus says. There'll always be choices. And these hard words from Jesus, these hard Christmas words, they need saying because of what we said earlier in this message, that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. It's a beautiful truth. Now, what does repentance look like? How does repentance manifest itself in my life? And Here's, here's what I usually do. I usually think of repenting for my bad actions. I lie, I steal, I cheat. I mean, I don't. 
steal, but I, I lie, steal, cheat, boast, hoard my material goods, covet. And so I know I need to repent of those actions. And then, and then Jesus comes and says that in all of this repenting, I have missed something huge. I need to repent not just for my actions. I need to repent for my allegiances in this world. I need to repent for my loves. I need to repent for where my heart goes out to instead of Christ. I need to make sure that not just my actions, but my affections and my loyalties. I need to cross that bridge before the time of persecution or division comes. When I follow Jesus, there has to be something truly radical happening or I'm not following him at all. And that's the reason Jesus shocks us with these words. Six and we're done. Jesus came to give eternal life. I'm thinking that of all the texts we went through that you may not have thought of, I'm pretty sure you'll know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is a Christmas text. The giving came long before the cross. That whoever believes in him should, should not perish, but have eternal life. A few Sunday nights ago, Right here in this church, a woman came and spoke to me, right down here, and she crunched back tears as she told me about her childhood, and there was just more pain and, and brokenness and hurt and dysfunctionality than I could fathom. And then there were the usual why questions that are always impossible to answer. And I know she wasn't asking those questions in bitterness by the way she closed the conversation. And she said words very much like this. She said, people tell me God didn't cause these events to come into my life. She said, I never know how to respond to that. If he didn't cause them, he certainly allowed them. And she looked at me and she said, how's that supposed to make me feel better? And I just stood there when she said that. I just stood there because I don't know why a lot of things happen. But then she wound things up gloriously. And she said, I don't know how people cope with all these things if they don't have eternity settled in their hearts. But whosoever believes in him should not perish, say the last part, but have eternal life. So I close with that one. She didn't use those exact words, but she was talking about eternal life. It's always the great, ultimate answer. It's a strong answer. It's not a religious cop-out. Jesus came to give us that ultimate answer to everything in life. He came to give eternal life to all who would believe. Those are the great I-Cames. I've come. Remember all of them. 
remember this. You can't have eternal life unless you have Jesus. I'd be the worst pastor in Canada if I didn't tell you that you can't have eternal life without Jesus Christ. I know some of you are thinking, you are the worst pastor. That's not the point. You can't have eternal life without Jesus Christ. I came. He came to give eternal life. And he came to give eternal life to sinners. Which is important because, here's my question, I want everybody to respond. I want everybody to respond. Are there any sinners in this room? Can I see your hand just for a sec? Yeah. You're in very good company. But you need Jesus, like I need Jesus. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you to the front. I promise, you can trust me. But I do want to pray for you. I want to pray that you'll get eternal life in Jesus Christ. Right now, that he'll come into your life. 